You've given us so much more than we can evaluate, so much more than we can assess. We thank you for your goodness to us that is constant and steady. You are a good father who takes really good care of your children. So we thank you for the richness of your gifts to us. We thank you most of all for the gift of your son. It's only because of him that we have anything else good that we have. And so we thank you for giving that ultimate gift that secures all other grace for us forever. So we celebrate that and we rejoice in it. And we pray, Father, that as we seek to listen to your word this morning, that you would instruct us and help us. Help us to know what we are to do with the things that you've given to us. Help us to see clearly how you want us to live in this world. Change us from the inside out. We want to be more like our Savior. And so we thank you for the presence of your Spirit in us to change us and to move us in that direction. Would you be at work now as your word is proclaimed? Give us all ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As popular as he has been, I don't typically recommend A.W. Tozer. Nevertheless, the first line of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, is certainly worth the multitude of times it has been quoted in books and sermons. And I'll add one more to that number. He wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I would say it differently. I would say, and I'll personalize it and direct it to you, What thoughts your mind generates about God is the most important thing about you. Saying it this way reminds us that we are responsible for our thoughts about God. They don't merely come into our minds from the outside, though they are shaped and influenced by a variety of forces outside of us. And I'd elaborate that your mind generates thoughts about God which are rooted in what you believe about God. Tozer recognized the tight connection between what we know about God and what we believe about God. He used the words somewhat interchangeably. On the negative side, Tozer drew out an implication from this true principle. He wrote, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. More positively, he also wrote, The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Wouldn't you like relief from the thousands of problems in your life? Tozer is right on this point. Seeing God clearly, believing the truth about God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, provides practical benefits for us in our day-to-day struggles. Tozer carries on with the negative implications of this truth as he discusses idolatry. He writes, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And a few sentences later, he adds, wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. It's that last sentence that I want to hone in on for a moment. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. 
false beliefs about God affect the choices we make. We all have a functional theology that doesn't necessarily match the ways we might answer questions on a theology quiz. For example, if you were to ask me, why were you fretting anxiously about the outcome of a doctor's appointment? At least part of the complete answer is that I was not believing in God's sovereignty, God's goodness, and or God's wisdom at the time. In those moments, I am acting like the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Or, if you believe that God is angry with you, if you believe God is out to get you, if you believe God is demanding and cruel, if you believe these things about God, that will certainly shape how you respond to suffering. If we believe God is punishing us with pain, we can move into a pagan mindset that begins desperately trying to figure out how to appease Him so that the pain will go away. If we believe that God is cruel, we can become bitter toward Him when we don't get the things that we want. Or more positively, if we believe God is totally sovereign, only good, and completely wise, then whatever befalls us, we can maintain stability, keep seeking to obey, and we can even find joy in our trials. When the Scriptures call us to walk by faith, or live by faith, or to trust in the Lord... Those are not generic commands without specific content. We must walk by faith in Jesus. We must live based on, driven by, motivated by, out of a concern for what we believe and know to be true about God. We must trust the Lord, not a God of our own imaginations, but the God who is revealed to us in the Bible. Now, because the true God is infinite, There is no end to our learning about Him and getting to know Him. No one on the planet has complete knowledge of God. But what He has revealed to us in the Bible about Himself belongs to us as His children. And we must pursue a growth in knowledge, growing in our understanding of who He is, of what He's like, and why it matters. To the degree that we don't pursue that... To the degree that we don't allow the Scriptures to correct our faulty thinking, we will find ourselves experiencing distance from Him and moving toward and into sin. As John Calvin observed long before Tozer, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart wants to misunderstand God. The human heart wants to distort the truth about God. Paul described human nature in Romans 1 as suppressing the truth about God that is evident to people in what he has made. Christian hearts must fight against this suppression. The thoughts your mind generates about God are the most important thing about you. Jesus will show this to be true in his parable of the talents. As Jesus continues instructing his disciples on the Mount of Olives three days before he goes to the cross, he seeks to prepare them for his absence. After he announced the destruction of the temple, he warned them about the danger of being led astray. He warned them about the danger of being distracted by the birth pains that must unfold in history. And he pressed them to separate his return and the end of the age from the destruction of the temple. These things wouldn't happen all at once. Instead, his return and the end of the age cannot be predicted, but must always be expected. His disciples must be ready 
And he illustrates what readiness must look like through several parables. Last week, Pastor Ken unpacked the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Five were ready when the groom arrived. Five were not. So it will be when the Son of Man comes. Some in the church will be ready, and they will join him for the celebration. Others in the church who call Jesus Lord, who were attached to the church and involved in the church, will be unprepared, and they will be excluded, sent away into eternal condemnation. In the parable of the talents, Jesus illustrates further what preparation needs to look like. He uses a picture of the responsibility of household slaves, expanding on what he had said earlier when he described the difference between a faithful and wise slave versus a wicked and hypocritical slave. Let's read the whole parable, and then we'll take it apart. We're looking at Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The major point of the parable, I think, is relatively straightforward. When accounts are settled, when Jesus returns, he will reward faithful responsibility with greater joyful responsibility. However, Jesus spends the most time fleshing out the third slave's actions and the master's treatment of him, so that this parable, like so many of the others, carries its emphasis in warning. 
Let's look more closely. Consider the setup of the parable. Responsibility given in verses 14 and 15. Now, the first phrase of verse 14, it will be like, takes us all the way back to verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like. Thus, this parable is describing some aspect of the kingdom, particularly life in the kingdom for its citizens while the king is away. But the story begins like this. A wealthy man prepares to leave for a long journey, and he entrusts the bulk of his wealth to three of his slaves. The man represents Jesus. The slaves represent those who claim to be his disciples, people in the church. The journey represents the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, what is often called the church age. So what about the talents? Well, literally, we're talking about a massive fortune, a huge amount of money. The word talent is not our English word talent. So some versions bring it over into English as a bag of money to make this clear. So try to get out of your mind the idea of special abilities, as the English word talent tends to mean. The Greek term is talenton, and it is a term used for the measurement of weight. One talenton weighed somewhere between 60 and 90 pounds, depending on the kind of metal, whether silver or gold. Think of that. Somewhere around 75 pounds of silver coins. That's a huge bag of money. Now, the value is typically measured such that one talenton was basically the amount of money a worker could earn in 20 years of steady work. So think of your salary accumulated over 20 years without you spending any of it. Thus, this man is very, very rich. He has eight huge bags of money to leave with his three slaves. That's not counting whatever money he might have needed to take with him on his journey. That he's handing the money over to his three slaves implies that he expects them to do something with it. He clearly expects them to use it to multiply his wealth. They are given an enormous responsibility. And don't miss that term, given. It'll come up emphatically when the first two slaves give their report to the master at the end. They saw that what had been entrusted to them was a gift to them. They didn't see their responsibility as a burden. Hold on to that thought. However, notice that he doesn't divide his wealth equally between the three. He divvies it out each to each according to his ability. So the master knew these slaves. He knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. He knew what they could do with his resources. Intriguingly, he does not tell them specifically what to do. He does not specify how they are to handle his money while he's gone, and he doesn't tell them when he's coming back. He simply places his massive wealth in their hands, expecting them to expand his enterprises while he's gone. He gives them the resources, and he expects them to use their creativity and their freedom to develop what he's given them. As John MacArthur puts it, when he left town for any length of time, they acted almost in his full authority, having the equivalent of what we now refer to as power of attorney. 
They were responsible for handling all the assets and business operations of their owner for his benefit and profit. So, if the master in the parable represents Jesus and the slaves represent people in the church, those who claim to be disciples, what does this handing over of of this wealth to his slaves represent? Essentially, it represents the whole range of responsibility given to citizens of the kingdom of heaven. His wealth entrusted to his followers means all the privileges and all the blessings and all the opportunities and all the resources Jesus has graciously bestowed on his church in this world while he's gone. This parable emphatically begins with the grace of Jesus toward his church on display. Hasn't Jesus granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, according to 2 Peter 1.3? Doesn't Paul promise that God will graciously give us all things in Romans 8.32? In 1 Timothy 6.17, doesn't Paul indicate that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy? Doesn't he promise in Philippians 4.19 that God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? This is what the parable depicts. The ridiculous amount entrusted to each slave is meant to reflect the riches of God's grace. How lavishly he supplies good for his church. See here the glorious generosity of our king. But... Out of that glorious, gracious provision, there is also significant responsibility implied. Each slave receives a different weight of responsibility. Even the slave who received one bag of money is responsible for an amount of money equivalent to 20 years' worth of hard-earned salary. And the fact that the master entrusted this amount to this one slave according to his ability indicates that the master knows that he has the ability and the opportunity to multiply its value. But it also suggests that he knows that this slave has less ability and less opportunity than the other two slaves. Thus, when he comes to settle accounts with them, none will be able to make the excuse that the master had given them too much. We'll see what that means at the end. But now let's see how the first two slaves discharge their responsibility in verses 16 and 17. The most important word. One writer describes it as the most exciting word in the parable. But at least the most important word in verse 16 is easy to miss. It's translated as at once in the ESV. In Greek, it's the first word of the sentence and could be translated immediately. It shows the first slave as instantly, immediately, taking his master's money and doing something with it. Jesus probably does put the word immediately first in order to communicate the enthusiasm, the zeal, the excitement of the slave to be taking care of his master's business. The word also carries over to the second slave's actions. Both slaves are eager to discharge their responsibility. They take great joy in enhancing their master's wealth. The other important word in these verses is the word translated as traded in the ESV. It's almost always translated elsewhere as worked. Ultimately, that's what this parable is pointing to. What does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? It means to be working. 
It means that the church must keep busy about the work Jesus has left us to do. And each follower of Jesus has a part to play, a particular responsibility to pursue that is unique to you. Though the emphasis in this parable is on faithfully discharging our responsibility, eagerly doing what we've been commanded to do, don't forget the backdrop of grace. As it is everywhere in Scripture, God's grace precedes and even empowers our responsibility. As one writer puts it, only the freely received gift enables the outgoing works. Receiving precedes doing. But the accent in this parable is going to fall on the judgment that comes when doing one's duty doesn't follow the grace that's been provided. Wherever God gives gifts to people, in whatever form they take, there is an implied responsibility for those who have received God's grace. Thus, there is accountability. The first two slaves didn't look at each other and contrast the gifts that they received. The second slave didn't burn with jealousy because the first slave received so much more money to work with. It may be that the second slave knows himself well enough to know that he couldn't handle such a large sum. But in any case, the second slave, like the first slave, merely focuses on his own responsibility. They both take what they've been given and run with it. We should imagine several years passing. These two slaves must have set up some kind of businesses that became wildly successful so that they doubled their master's investment. Again, consider the large sums. The first slave started with five bags of money, an amount of money an ordinary worker would have had to work for a hundred years to accumulate without spending any of it. By the time the master returns, this slave will have double that amount in hand. Likewise, the second slave started with two bags of money, an amount of money an ordinary worker would have had to work for 40 years to accumulate without spending any of it. He too will have double that amount in hand when the master returns. Well, what about the third slave? Look again at verse 18 and see the way he's dodged his responsibility. The third slave chooses to play it safe. He buries the one bag of money in a hole. I wonder how long it took him to dig that hole. Surely not as long as it took the other two slaves to earn their profit. Burying money in the ground in the ancient world was considered to be the best way to keep money safe. But money in the ground doesn't multiply. As my grandfather told me many times growing up, money doesn't grow on trees. We will hear the slave's attempt to justify his actions in just a bit, but we can initially see the positive side of his action. At least he wouldn't lose any of it. The other two slaves risked losing, and given their massive success, I'd say they chose to risk quite a lot. The third slave chose to take no risk. Or he thought he was taking no risk. He wasn't going to risk the possibility of losing some of the master's money. Fear of the master's response was likely motivating him, as we'll soon see. But he doesn't seem to recognize that dodging the great responsibility he'd been given, failing to increase the master's wealth, carried much greater risk to his own life. As John MacArthur points out, although he had been given fewer resources than the other two slaves, he had the same obligation to use what he had to his maximum ability. So, are you burying your talent? 
while you wait for Jesus to return? Are you at your leisure? Or are you concerned about the priorities of the kingdom? One writer puts it this way, Although Jesus urged disciples to be alert or watch for his return, this does not mean that they are to climb onto their rooftops and gaze idly into the heavens as they wait for his coming. Such would be equivalent to hiding the talent in the earth. Essentially, what the third slave did in the parable represents how you might come to church on Sundays, sit in these seats while playing on your phone instead of listening to the sermon, not singing, not really engaging with the Christians around you. And then you'll go home and not think about Jesus, not open your Bible, not seek to serve anyone but yourself for the rest of the week. The third slave didn't do anything particularly wrong. He's not like the wicked slave Jesus depicted earlier, the one that beat his fellow slaves while the master was away. This slave just didn't do anything. Do people outside this church, people in your family, people at your school, people at your job, people in the community, do they know that you're a follower of Jesus? Do you live as a citizen of the kingdom, as a subject of King Jesus, in a way that impacts how you live out there? If you don't know Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, and those two things mean the same thing, hear me. Jesus is coming back, and he could arrive at any moment. Don't you want to be found discharging the responsibility that follows from the gifts he's given to you? And even if you haven't yet been saved, the fact that you're sitting here, the fact that you're hearing God's word preached, rubbing shoulders with genuine believers, you are receiving God's grace. Don't receive it in vain. When Jesus returns, it will be a time of judgment, both reward and punishment. Let's consider the responsibility rewarded, as we see in verses 19 to 23. Notice the first words of verse 19. Now, after a long time, Jesus implies that there might be a long season of waiting for the church. Nevertheless, it is certain that that long time will not go on forever. He will return. And when he does, it'll be time to settle accounts. Let's consider the reports of the first two slaves first in verses 20 and 22. The only difference between the two reports is the number of bags of money. Otherwise, the wording of the reports is identical. Notice the first words out of the slaves' mouths. Look at verse 20. Master, you delivered to me five talents. The master knows that. But from the slave's vantage point, this cannot be left out. It must be stated first. This is a way of ultimately giving credit to the master. What they've done was impossible without what he handed over to them. It was his resources. It was was what he supplied to them. It was his grace. But then notice the report of their accomplishment. Here, I have made five talents more. The word translated here is much stronger. It's the word for behold. He's saying to the master, look, look, look what I've done. It surely communicates the slave's excitement about his accomplishment. I'm reminded of how my daughter will approach me 
Sometimes to get my attention, wanting to show me something she's written, something she's drawn, something she's crafted. She's so excited and she'll yell not my name louder and louder and tell me a million times to look here until I jump and run. I'm not as enthusiastic as I should be in my responses to those moments. We'll see how the master in this parable matches their enthusiasm in his commendation in just a moment. But that innocuous word, here, in the ESV, misses something beautiful. We might wonder about how the slaves draw attention to their deeds. I have made five talents more. I have made two talents more. As individuals, their claim represents the believer's proper appeal to good works as evidence of genuine discipleship. Christians will face the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account of ourselves, our words, our deeds, and our lives. And the Lord's judgment will be according to our works. But notice again that this claim of deeds follows directly after their acclaim of His grace to them. We must hold God's grace together with our responsibility. We must see how it is God who is working in us, equipping us to act in ways that please God so that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, to paraphrase Philippians 2, 12 and 13. When we have our day in court, face to face with our Lord, our works will serve as the confirming evidence of our justification. That is what Jesus is depicting in this part of the parable, I think. Now, consider the reward the master gives the first two slaves. In verses 21 and 23, the master responds with identical words to both slaves. As commentator Dan Doriani comments, it is heartwarming further to observe that the two faithful servants silently receive disparate talents but work with equal faithfulness, hear identical praise, and receive identical rewards from the master. The Lord does not assess his servants by the sheer quantity that we produce, but by faithful use of whatever resources he grants us. And as Dale Bruner writes, the main feature in this second uh, in the second reward is the two-talented servant receiving exactly the same praise as the five-talented servant. Not one word is different. Thus, even if our work is on a lower level than others in this life, that is not important. Important is what we did with what we received. The reward comes in four parts. First, there's the commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. The word translated well done comes across as bravo, excellent. Why don't our English translations more often use exclamation points? The master matches the slave's enthusiasm. Look with an excellent. He sees their works and says that they are good. But it's not just the works that are good. It's the slaves that are good. Good and faithful. That's what remaining ready looks like in a nutshell. Faithfulness in good works. But in the second part of the reward, he further commends their faithfulness, saying that they've been faithful over a little. A little? Given the value we've discussed of these talents, it's remarkable that the master estimates that as a little. He must be very, very rich indeed. Perhaps he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
Notice again that his commendation is not of their skill or ability. As one writer notices, he calls them good and faithful, not smart and successful. The third part of the reward comes in the form of a promise of further responsibility. I will set you over much. This is probably akin to what we saw in Matthew 24, 47, where Jesus spoke of the faithful and wise slave in that other parable, and he said, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But in this parable, at the story level, we might be seeing evidence that the slaves get to keep the money. They had worked as stewards of their master's money, and they had faithfully produced a profit. But now the master rewards them by allowing them to keep all the money. But he intends that they would then go out and use it and continue to multiply it. Sometimes when we see here and in other places an indication that among the eternal rewards granted to followers of Jesus in the new creation, there will be work to do. We can roll our eyes and not be particularly excited about that. But that is to forget that God created humanity to work. It is only human sin and rebellion that has made work in this world so frustrating. Work is a gift from God. And whatever form that work is going to take in the new creation, where there will be no sin and no curse and no brokenness, will be spectacularly satisfying. As one writer says, heavenly rewards are not beds of rest. They are posts of duty. But let's not hold that duty too far apart from the fourth part of the master's reward here. Enter into the joy of your master. Entering the master's joy probably is to be pictured as entering a celebratory banquet where the master is hosting and honoring his slaves. The master has been gone on a long journey. He has returned to find two of his slaves having doubled his massive wealth while he was away. It's party time. The slaves are to share the master's joy. It was the master's resources that they multiplied. Therefore, it's his joy that gets to be shared now. So, what about the report of the third slave? Look at verses 24 and 25 where we see irresponsibility rationalized. He begins his report just like the other two slaves with the word master. And actually, it might be important at this point to observe that the word translated master is the word usually translated as Lord. He addresses him as Lord. From here, everything is different from the other two slaves. Instead of how they began by speaking of the grace the master had bestowed on them, he begins with a claim of knowledge. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. The Greek is more clipped and more terrible. He starts by saying literally, Lord, I know you. Then he characterizes what he knows about his master. He describes him as hard. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When this slave thought about his master, the word his mind generated was hard or harsh or demanding. He illustrates the master's perceived hardness by claiming that the master was reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he scattered no seed. On the surface, he seems to be suggesting that his master is a crook and a thief, what one writer summarizes as a petty tyrant. This perception made the slave afraid. 
He continues his rationalization, saying in verse 25, So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Fear of the master has motivated him. The slave seems to think this fearful response is praiseworthy. In light of the perceived bad character of the master, the slave thinks that he will reward his shrewdness, ensuring that his one heavy bag of money didn't lose an ounce. The slave's last words reveal something else important about his perception. He says, here, you have what is yours. And the word here is the same word the other two slaves used earlier. Look. But I suspect there's no sense of excitement in this third slave. In his last words, he says to the master, you have what is yours, which indicates that the slave never took real ownership of what his master had given him. While the first two slaves certainly recognized that the money had been entrusted to them, they didn't own it. They also invested their very selves into what they had been given. In a sense, it was theirs after all. And indeed, the master seems to give it all to them anyway at the end. In other words, they recognized that their master was sharing with them what was his. That is what fueled them to work so hard and to prove so successful. This third slave, however, despises his master's money, doesn't see it as a beautiful gift being shared with him, and thus he buries it in the ground like trash. Now, when the master has returned, he digs it out of the back garden and presents it to the master, probably with muck and worms dropping off of it. In one sense, we could say that the slave was paralyzed by his fear of doing something wrong, of making a mistake. He knew there would be a risk if he started a business with his, with his huge amount of money. It might not turn a profit. And because he saw his master as hard, because he believed the master was demanding and forceful, he was terrified that should a venture prove unprofitable, he'd be severely punished. He acted based on what he knew about his master, or rather he enacted. He put forth the least amount of effort. He buried the money in the dirt. And now that his master is returned, he boldly stands before him, admitting what he really thinks about him. And does he dare expect a commendation? He is deluded if he does. In verses 26 to 30, we see this irresponsibility punished. The master ignores the slave's characterization of him as hard, or at least he doesn't respond to it. The master's response runs parallel to his responses to the first two slaves. The four aspects of the reward of the first two slaves are inverted with the third slave. First, he condemns the third slave as wicked and slothful, evil and lazy. He elaborates on the slave's wickedness by first repeating the slave's characterization of the master as a thieving tyrant. And he uses the slave's false belief as the basis for his condemnation. If the slave really believed that the master gained his wealth through theft or abuse, then the master was a powerfully evil man indeed. And if the slave really believed that the master was that powerful, then the master shows that the slave didn't act rationally on even based on his false belief. The slave was evil in his mischaracterization of the master, and the slave was lazy in that he didn't do what the master knew he could do. This takes us back to the beginning where the master had given this slave one bag of money according to his ability. Thus, this slave had the opportunity and the ability to invest the master's money in such a way that it would have 
gain interest. This is the second aspect of the slave's condemnation. He is reprimanded for his lack of faithfulness. He didn't do what he could have and should have done with the money entrusted to him. Investing it with the bankers would have cost the slave minimal effort. So even in his laziness, he could have done that much, and the master would have received an enhancement of his wealth. But this shows us that the most fundamental problem with the third slave was what he claims to know about the master. The master's treatment of the other two slaves gives us plenty of evidence that the master is, in fact, ridiculously generous and gracious. The slave didn't know what he thought he knew. The slave's perspective about the master was wrong. But that false belief resulted in him abandoning all reason. Perhaps we could even say that the third slave is seen here suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Thus, he feared the master in a way that didn't reflect the truth about the master. And his misplaced fear motivated him to act stupidly. The third aspect of the master's condemnation is the removal of the money from the third slave. Whereas the other two slaves end up with the money entrusted to them, and the money they had earned, the third slave ends up with nothing. He did nothing, and now he has nothing. As one writer puts it, to play it safe and keep one's slate clean is not enough. God looks for more than a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. This removal of the money represents the exposure of a person as a false believer. But shockingly, not only does the master take the money from the third slave, but he also gives it to the first slave. The first slave benefits somehow from the wickedness and laziness of the third slave. Besides the humongous amounts involved, this is the most bizarre part of the story. And sometimes it's the most unrealistic part of the parables of Jesus that present to us the most surprising and the most profound points of application. As often as readers of this parable cry foul at just this point, accusing the master of gross unfairness, I think we are meant to see the fantastic generosity of the master on display yet again. As we saw back in Matthew 20, in the parable of the good employer and the envious workers, where the man who only worked in the master's vineyard for one hour got paid the same amount as those who worked all day long, here we get a glimpse that the reward offered by Jesus to his good and faithful servants far exceeds what they deserve. As the third slave had said, it is the master's money and it belongs to him. And as the master in the vineyard parable from Matthew 20 had said, he has the freedom to do what he wants with what belongs to him. In verse 30, we see the fourth aspect of the master's condemnation of the third slave. Whereas the first two slaves were invited to enter the celebratory banquet and share in the master's joyful feast, the third slave is to be cast outside into the outer darkness. In verses 28 and 30, the master commands some group of people, perhaps another group of slaves, to deal with the third slave. They are to take the money away from him, give the money to the first slave, and throw the third slave, now described as worthless, into the outer darkness. Jesus has used this phrase earlier to speak of where the Jewish leaders and all Jews who reject him will be thrown. The celebration there, back in Matthew chapter 8, 
think it was. The celebration there was depicted as a party and a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus shockingly said that Jews who did not believe in him would not be there, but Gentiles who do believe in him will. So here, the worthless slave, the slave who did not work with what he was given, will be excluded. Just like the five bridesmaids who didn't prepare by making sure they had extra oil in case the groom was delayed, so this slave will not be allowed to participate in the festivities. The party inside will be full of light and joy. The slave will be outside in the blackness of night, unable to see it, unable to enjoy it forever. And Jesus adds, the place where he will be thrown will be full of people weeping and gnashing their teeth, including the third slave. As we've seen repeatedly in Matthew's gospel, these phrases describe hell. Thus, here we see clearly that the third slave represents, in the real world, a person who claims to believe in Jesus, a person who remains connected to the church, a person who calls Jesus Lord, but a person who will spend eternity in hell, condemned by God, rejected by Jesus. This is the kind of person Jesus spoke of in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. There he had said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whereas there, Jesus focused on folks who would protest Jesus' rejection of them because of their mighty works. Here, Jesus highlights someone who quietly seeks to coast, lazily remains uninvolved, someone whose self-preoccupation leads to presumption, someone who thinks salvation is just a matter of praying a prayer of confession. Jesus warns us because He loves us. If you're going to be properly prepared for Jesus' return, you must pursue faithful obedience to His Word. Every good thing you have has been given to you by God. It's all a gift. Are you using what He's given you? Your job, your money, your relationships, your home, your stuff, your skills, your time, your ideas, your strength, your beauty, your reputation, your past, your suffering? Are you using what he's given you in ways that point to Jesus, in ways that celebrate his goodness, in ways that serve other people? If you're not, you might be in danger of losing all of it. The picture of hell that Jesus paints here for this third slave highlights the eternal pain of separation. There's utter darkness so that you can't see anything. There's loneliness so that you can't enjoy the company of anyone else. And there's boredom, so that you have nothing productive to do. If you choose to do nothing now with what God has given to you, all the while claiming to be a Christian, seeking to enjoy the privileges while dodging the responsibilities, you should expect to have nothing to do for eternity. You will weep in sorrow and regret forever. And you will gnash your teeth in rage against the God who gave you everything good you ever enjoyed. The third slave is a picture of someone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, but who doesn't really know Jesus. 
The third slave is a picture of Judas. Is it a picture of you? I hope not. If you view Jesus as harsh, if you view God as cruel, if you map your experience with your own earthly father in his cruelty or in his absence onto your heavenly father, rather than letting the Bible teach you why it's the best news ever to have God as your father, examine yourself carefully. You might not know what you think you know. If you're still sitting on the sidelines, to borrow an old line from Pastor Ken, it's time for you to get in the game. I skipped verse 29. I think verse 29 should be viewed as in parentheses, not actually part of the parable. Jesus stuck it in to explain to his disciples the principle that undergirds the shocking actions of the master in verse 28, giving the money formerly buried by the third slave to the first slave. Look at verse, 30, verse 29 again. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is actually the second time Jesus has said this. We read these words back in Matthew thirteen twelve. There, the principle applied to the way people responded to Jesus' teachings. Here, Jesus applies the principle to the way those who profess to be his followers act in response to all that they've been given. We could say that in Matthew 13, the principle has to do with whether or not we believe what Jesus says. But here, the principle has to do with whether or not we are going to obey what Jesus says, discharging our responsibility in the kingdom of heaven on earth faithfully or not. But in this parable, it also makes clear what I was just saying. The third slave represents someone who is not a genuine follower of Jesus. The third slave is a have-not Oh yes, he's received a lot of good things from the Lord, and therefore he is accountable. But he has not received saving grace. He has not seen the Master as he really is. He has not trusted the Master. As Dale Bruner writes, unused muscles atrophy, unused talents damn, unfruitful trees are felled for the fire. But on the other side, the other two slaves have And they will be rewarded with even more. Everyone who has will have an abundance. When he returns, Jesus will reward his true followers with far more than they could ever imagine or earn. And his true followers will be the ones seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, however long our Lord tarries. Commentator David Garland writes, When Christ returns, he will not ask if one had the date right. But what have you been doing? And so I ask you to consider now, what are you doing with what you have been given? God has given us all so much, and every person on the planet is accountable to Him for what each one has received. But for us in the church, we have the truth about God displayed before us in the gospel. The grace and generosity of the Lord is seen most clearly in the gift of God's Son, giving his life on the cross. We must see him this way, as he really is. We must think of Jesus in every circumstance of our lives as totally good and abundantly gracious. And seeing him that way, seeing him as he really is, will surely impact the way we respond to trials and temptations. Don't use your jaded 
and confused perspective about God as an excuse for laziness and sin. Grief and suffering can also pull us into a distorted view of God. Prepare for this temptation. During times of suffering, when we are sapped of strength and our emotions are numb, we can easily drift away from reading the Bible, drift away from engaging with other Christians. This can be deadly. It's in times of suffering when we need to look clearly at our dear Savior. It's in times of grief when we need to hear others remind us of what Jesus is really like. We can't trust our own perceptions. What are you doing with what you have been given? Faithful readiness for Jesus' return looks like serving others and seeking to maximize the life God has given to you, wherever you are, with whatever resources you have. Christian husbands, are you loving your wives? Christian parents, are you seeking to raise your children according to the teachings of Jesus? Christian wives, are you loving your husbands? Christian singles, are you investing your time in serving others? Christian business owners, are you working with financial integrity? Christian homeowners, are you welcoming people into your homes? Christian people, are you sharing your resources with each other? Look again at Jesus. See Him as He is a gracious and kind Savior. Or as He described Himself earlier in this gospel, He is gentle and lowly. When He returns, He will reward His followers by changing us to be like Him and sharing with us His eternal joy. But He will also severely punish those who faked it among His followers. I appeal to all of you, be reconciled to God. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Trust Jesus for the forgiveness of all your failures and sins and seek to be faithful with all that He has entrusted to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for all the good that you've given us. We could never tabulate it in a list, though we might try. There's not enough paper and ink in the world. There's not enough digital space in the world to record it all. And so we thank you for the measureless grace that you have poured out on all of us. Would you help us to see it? Help us to acknowledge it and to give you the thanks that you so richly deserve. And in the midst of it all, would you help us to see how to discharge our responsibility faithfully? In light of what you've given us, help us to know how to live with it, with those things, with those resources, with those opportunities and spread your grace abroad. May we be the conduits of your grace that you have created us to be. Help us to walk faithfully in the good works you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Thank you for the power that you supply through your Spirit, the wisdom that you supply through your Spirit. Help us to depend on it. And I pray for anyone that's been listening to this who doesn't really know you, who's either self-deceived or is faking it, would you wake them up? Would you wake them up? Penetrate their hard hearts. Transform them. Show them who you really are. Thank you for the power that you have to do that for even the hardest sinner. We grant repentance as a gift. And so we pray that all of us would receive it with gratitude 
and be changed by it. Thank you for the warnings of Scripture, as hard as they are for us to hear sometimes. We need them. We thank you for the ways that you use them to keep us on track. Help us to pursue faithfulness intentionally. Help us to respond to the grace that you've given. For Jesus' sake, amen.